You are listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, DC, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, we're talking about forgiveness today, and I would imagine everybody in here would acknowledge that forgiveness is a good thing. It's healthy, it's mature to forgive somebody who's wronged you, and it's deeply beneficial to you. That was much of an Atlantic article I read not that long ago. It was about the mental and physical benefits of forgiveness. They talk about people who forgive, have a reduction in stress, depression, anxiety, and I think many of us would know that. Yeah, there's a great medical benefit to forgiving people. And they just quoted all manner of studies about, yes, people who forgive found that in different studies that they complained of less physical symptoms, they used less medications, they slept better, had less fatigue, had less medical complaints, that it releases the amount of cortisol, stress hormone that's released in you, you get a better sense of well-being. Uh, Another study showed that those who hold on to resentment see a decrease in brain size, sex drive, and digestive ability, and all of us go, wow, that's bad, I don't want that, so let me forgive people just for the sake of my digestion and sex life, I'll need to forgive you. was another study in there that showed that people were asked to recall a memory and feel resentment over someone who wronged them. And then another group was called to remember a memory where they forgave someone altruistically. And then they had both groups jump and the forgiving group jumped seven centimeters higher. They said it's even sort of a mental exercise when you feel burdened by guilt and shame and resentment, it even burdens you physically. And so some of you have been wondering why you're not able to dunk yet. And I'm just here to tell you, you're like, oh, it's because I never forgave my dad. And you're right. Some of you, that's just what's going to get you over the rim. Others of you, you're 5'9", and it's time to let it go. You're not going to get there. But I think all of us know Forgiveness is a good thing. Forgiveness is a healthy thing. Forgiveness is something we should do. But when it comes to our life, I don't know though, man, because resentment tastes delicious. It's good to be mad. There's something empowering about someone wronged me. There's something righteous when I go online and say, who has, who has hurt us today? Shame on you. I'm beyond horrified. I get it. We feel that. When I was writing this talk, I was living in the world of forgiveness and got about to preach to you about the need to forgive. And then I got food poisoning from Buffalo Wild Wings. And about, you know, three rounds of vomiting in, I'm like, "Yes, you, Buffalo! Ah!" You know, it's like, I'm vomiting up my soul. I'm like, oh man, just rage against Buffalo Wild Wings. I understand it. And here's the thing. We live in a culture of unforgiveness. You see it. It's a very natural human thing, but watch it around the world. We're simmering in resentment. You see it in other cultures. I remember when I went to the Middle East, talking to two cultures that have been fighting for centuries and asking one of them, is there any way for you to have peace with those people over there? We could see them across the wall. And he said, no, because they're all liars. All of them? Have you ever met that guy? But so much resentment, so much anger. It's reduced any ability to conversate and it's reduced it to just resentment, hatred, and violence. You see it in our movies. John Wick 3 is about to make millions because we love vengeance. You kill my dog, I'll kill all of you. And we love it. We'll pay a lot. Make that movie a third time for us. We soak in it online. 
I don't know, some of you are aware, others of you aren't, that there's been a big brouhaha forming in the YouTube beauty makeup tutorial uh, world lately. That one makeup tutorial artist on YouTube did some things that hurt the feelings of another makeup tutorial artist, and so she posted a long video slamming him, and you go, this is pretty niche, but they all have like <laughs> millions of followers. Millions of people listen to them. And she scorched this guy, and within a day or so, three million people quit following him. Sponsors began to drop in, and that's tragic. But then people began to heap abuse upon them and began to scorn him and shame him and attack him online. The mob formed around him. We have to destroy him because he violated us. And here's the thing, whether he's right or wrong or what the issue is doesn't matter, but the reason it hit national news is because it surfaced some language used in that community that when someone does little wrongs against you, you just keep tabs of it. You keep screenshots of something they texted or you keep a little video of something they said or you keep a little email that they sent and they called them receipts. And so if you're ever gonna come after that person, you show the receipts of why they're wrong and then the big finale is you cancel them. That's the language they use. You cancel them. And what's crazy about that is it's not just I disagree with them. It's not saying they hurt my feelings. It's saying I want you to go away. I want you to disappear. You are not worthy to be looked upon or listened to or valued as a human. It was interesting. I watched an interview not long ago of a man that uh, was, had been convicted of plagiarizing. And as he was confessing that, he came to apologize to a group of people. They put a live feed of Twitter up responding to his speech. And you watch the mob crucify him. And they began to say things like, you're incapable of feeling shame. You're a sociopath. People that don't know him. But as I listened to the man who was describing this moment talk about it, he said, this is a very human thing to do that. Call him a name. You're a sociopath. Why? Because we need to dehumanize him because we want to destroy him while not feeling inhumane. So I don't want to be a bad guy. So let me dehumanize you so then I can be inhumane to you. And that is the world. And history has flown that way all the time. We do it politically. Those people are idiots. They're monsters. They're animals. They're what do we do? We consistently name call to dehumanize. Why? Because it feels better to destroy. And we see that and it's an ugliness in our world today and it's invaded us and it's not meant to be that way. It's not. It's fascinating in that article in the Atlantic about unforgiveness. They got to... Um, much of the information was by a guy who was a champion of forgiveness. He's a psychologist and a professor at the Virginia Commonwealth University. And he was talking about the health benefits of forgiveness, the necessity to do it, even in the midst of difficulty. But he's been a big promoter of it, Everett Worthington. And yet while he's been spending his career promoting forgiveness, he gets a call that an intruder had broken into a 78-year-old mother's home and murdered her. And he said in that moment, and he and brother heard the news, he said he looked over at a bat in the corner, just his eyes instinctively landed on it, and he said to his brother, I wish that man was here so I could beat his brains in. And the forgiveness man suddenly found, I can preach forgiveness. Oh, of course, the benefits are so great, but when someone hurts me, I want revenge. They need to pay. Resentment is what we simmer in, and some of us are living there. A lover that wronged you. You hold on to that bitterness. 
a parent who wasn't there for you. That anger feels like it makes you strong and justifies whatever behavior you do next. That roommate that wronged you, it makes you feel good to know you're morally superior. We preserve that unforgiveness. But here's the tragedy. That runs the opposite direction of the gospel. As you read this passage, Jesus will say it in stark colors. You cannot grip onto bitterness and grip onto the gospel at the same time because they are going opposite directions. Our world knows resentment, but we know redemption. We know a different story. And Jesus will say, you can't embrace the forgiveness of God and then be unforgiving towards others. You can't do that. That's like getting married but still wanting to date other people. You can't do that. At some point, you gotta let one go. And you cannot grip the gospel of grace and hold on to resentment. Not in Jesus' economy, you can't. And so he says it in the clearest colors in Matthew 6. We're meant to pray, forgive us our debts, O God, as, you, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And then he explains it. If you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you. He links the two. You need to forgive people, not just because it'll help you sleep better, a little less stress. He says you have to. If you know God's forgiveness, you have to extend it. And if you can't extend it, you don't know him. He links those tightly together. We we have to forgive those who have wronged us. And so it's difficult because holding on to bitterness is delicious. Yet we are meant to live another way. And Jesus unpacks this for us. And what I want to do is I want to just walk us through the story he tells. And then I want us to apply the implications to our own lives and how we treat those who have jilted us. But to enter the story, it's in Matthew chapter 18. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, asked him the question, Master, how many times should I forgive a brother? And by context, Jesus had been telling the story uh, or been talking to them about what to do when a brother sins against you. He says, when a brother sins against you, here's what you're supposed to do. Go to them in secret, tell them what they did. If they repent, you won your brother over, problem solved. And if they don't repent, you get another brother and y'all hash it out or you bring some more people, you get the church involved. And he gave them a path of reconciliation. When someone hurts you, seek to reconcile. That's kind of the pathway with the brothers, with the family of God. That's how you're meant to do it. And so he's telling them that pathway, but you can sense in the text, maybe Peter is concerned about someone taking advantage of your kindness. But what if someone abuses that system? So Peter asked the follow-up question. Well, okay, Jesus, how often should I forgive a brother? Now, what's interesting is he already knew the answer in rabbinic teachings. Rabbinic teachings of the day were very clear. Three times. If someone hurts you, you forgive them three times, then that's it. You cut them off. And so Peter asked the question, and then he offers an answer. How many times should I forgive him? Seven and he throws an even more gracious number out. I think he did it to sound impressive. Like, how many times should I forgive him? Seven? Like, wow. That everyone around him was like, dude, that is like double and then one extra. That is <laughs> crazy. He's like, I know, I know. And Jesus responds to him, no, no. Like 77 times or 70 times seven times. It's hard to understand language, but the point is you don't count. It's not about counting it, man. You're misunderstanding the grace of God and how it works. And so then Jesus does what's helpful for all of us. He starts telling a story. And he tells a story that really plays out in three scenes that illustrate his point. And scene one is in the king's courtroom. 
And it's a picture of a king who wants to settle a debt. And so the king wants to settle his debts. And they said a debtor comes forward that owed him 10,000 talents. Now, by way of context, that would have shocked the people listening to the story. That would have been crazy because Jesus picks the largest number for which that Greek language had a word and the largest denomination of currency used at the time. So when Jesus is talking about the servant's debt, he picks the largest number he can say in a word and the largest denomination of money he could say at the time. He picks an astronomical number, 10,000 talents. By way of context, Josephus, the historian, said all the taxes gathered in that surrounding area of Judea, Idumea, and Samaria combined to 600 talents. So this moron owes the king more money than existed in circulation in the nation at the time. So already Jesus' story is off the rails. People are like, what are you saying? It's like Jesus saying, this guy owed him like a gigabillion dollars. You'd be like, wait, what? Like that doesn't even make any sense. Like how do you do it? What were you doing? What did you purchase? How is that possible? And then you'd go, how incompetent is your king? How asleep at the wheel is this guy that you're, you're racking up multiple national debt levels and we didn't even know. So he brings the guy forward. He's like, hey man, you blew through like a gigabillion. Uh, you know what? I'm gonna, I'm gonna sell you, all right? So I'm selling you and your family. The top guy that was sold in that day was sold for one talent, okay? So this is not the king getting his money back, right? King's taking a loss. He's like, I'm just getting rid of this guy. You're gone. And so the guy responds, by crying. You know, he hits his knees, starts begging, have mercy on me. And then he says, I will repay you, which is like the stupidest sentence you can say. Because what he owed him was a hundred million days wages. 275,000 years is what it would take to pay that back. You're not doing it. You racked up too much debt. You don't have the capacity in you to pay what you racked up in debt. And then the story gets crazier. The king hears that and doesn't say, all right, give it a shot, big stuff. You know, he doesn't say that. It says the king looks at him and he has compassion or pity. The root of that word is the word splagnitsma, means lower intestine. And what it means is he has a gut level visceral reaction. I have an emotion of co-passion, passion meaning suffering, like I, like I am with you that this is a sad thing. And the king looks at this man with pity, with compassion, and doesn't say, all right, I'll let you work it off. He says, I forgive the debt. I forgive it. You're free. And he lets him leave. That first scene would have stunned the crowd into silence. What kind of king is that gracious? What kind of king would do something like that? It, it sounds crazy, but it also sounds like the kind of king you would want when you screw up. Scene change. Now we're on the streets. Servant walks out and he sees another servant of the king. Not his servant, a servant of the king. He sees him and he owes him money. So this guy owes me a debt. So what does he do? Text says he grabs him by the throat, which is a Roman thing to do. Back then in Rome, if a guy owed you money, you could grab him by the throat in public. And it was meant to shame the guy. 
And he grabs him by the throat and begins to run him off to jail. And the guy stops and interestingly says the exact same sentence, have mercy on me and I will repay you. And that guy owed him a hundred denarii. And a hundred denarii is not nothing, all right? Just to be clear, a hundred denarii is a legitimate debt owned, okay? Uh, a denarii, a hundred denarii, if, if you run it through the average day's wage here, it would be about 12 grand. So that's not nothing. Like if the person sitting next to you owed you 12 grand, you'd probably be thinking about it right now. You know what I mean? <laughs> Like when you were singing, you'd be like, stronghold, bowing, you still owe me 12 grand. And you know, like it would, you'd be aware. When you saw them, you'd be like, what's up, 12 grand? I mean, Steve, like you, it would be there for you, right? It's not nothing. But compared to the debt he owed, it's infinitesimally small by comparison. Do you see it? And when this guy says, I will repay you, that's a legitimate possibility. But this guy don't want to hear it. So he chokes him and imprisons him. And it says the other servants were shocked. Why is that? Because that prison, you only did that to people who owed over 500 denarii. So this guy's level of indignation outstripped the level of offense. But that's what you do when you're proud. And so he throws this man into jail. And the world is horrified. And they tell the king. Scene three, the king hears about it. And he's furious. Because the way things worked back then was if there was a famine in the land, crop failure, kings would often forgive people their debt because they knew you were suffering and in need. And the understanding was if our king shows us benevolence, we show benevolence as well. And this man's refusal to do it is an insult to the king. And the king said, I had mercy on you and you would not extend it to others? Then guess what? You get none from me. And he throws into our texts, kind of sanitizes it, the jailers. The text reads to the torturers. I throw you out into perdition because you refuse to show mercy. And here's the thing. If you were listening to this story, you'd be with him too. If this story played out online, you'd be like, yeah, that dude makes me sick. How dare you? I'm beyond horrified. Hashtag canceled. Right? You would feel all that. And then Jesus flips it on you and says, so my father will do to you if you don't forgive from your heart. He's talking to you and he's talking to me. What's he saying? He's saying, if you don't show grace, you don't know grace. The people who've received the grace of God show grace. Those who understand they are debtors before a holy king know what it is to forgive debts. But if you are harboring bitterness and resentment, it's because you hold the grace of God as cheap. You don't understand what he forgave you from. And your inability to forgive shows that you don't even know what it is to be forgiven because those who know grace show grace. Those who do not show grace don't know it. Now, is he saying you earn your salvation? No. If he was trying to make that point, he would have flipped it. There was a servant that was forgiven a bunch of people, and so one day he was forgiven because he earned it. That's not the story. The grace of the king flies first. That's the gospel. While we were sinners, Christ died for us. That's how the gospel works. While we were the enemies of God, the grace of God came running after us. While we were blowing God off, Jesus Christ came to you. While they were spitting on him and mocking him, he gave his life to pay their debt. That's the gospel. And then when you receive that, it changes you. 
and you become something else. How do we know you received his grace? It would be like me. How do you know if a wealthy benefactor gave me a billion dollars? Because I'd start writing million dollar checks, right? You would see money flowing out of me. If he, how do you know I never deposited it? Because I don't have that in my bank. God has given you a billion dollars of grace. How do we know if you've deposited it in the bank of your heart? We see what's flowing out of your account. And if you're writing checks of bitterness, it's because you haven't cashed his. But if you're flowing out grace, it's because you know what it is to have grace deposited in your soul. Those who know grace show grace. Are you forgiving to those who've hurt you? Your king is forgiving. And if you are not, you're dishonoring the king. It's as stark and difficult as that. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. If we don't forgive them, he doesn't forgive us. That's the way it works. But his proceeds. Colossians 3 says it this way, as those who've been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with one another, forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Or Ephesians 4, get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, and slander. Those are normal human emotions. He says, but you get rid of those and instead be kind and compassionate, forgiving each other, just as Christ and God forgave you. When we understand how much God has forgiven us, when we understand Christ's forgiveness of us, that empowers us to forgive others. That's how it works. God's grace flies first, but ours must fly second. That's how it works. His forgiveness precedes and undergirds our own. And we are the most like God when we forgive. So the question is, if it's that important to God, how do we do it? How do we do it? Let me give you a couple things. Number one, I would say what this story teaches us is you acknowledge that there's a legitimate debt owed. You acknowledge that a legitimate debt is owed. In the family of Jesus, forgiveness is not minimization. That's something our world confuses a lot. When someone wrongs us, hey man, sorry about that. It's no big deal. What are you doing? You're trying to shrink his trespass. It didn't bother me that much. It doesn't affect me. It's no big deal. We try to minimize what they've done. And then when someone really wrongs you or abuses you or hurts you, you can't minimize it. And if it sounds like the Christian community is minimizing it, you say, I can't minimize this. It was too big. The gospel never calls you to minimize sin. If anything, you take it even more seriously because you see it what it costs God. So forgiveness is not minimization. It's not saying it's no big deal. You acknowledge a legitimate debt is owed. That's a hundred denarii of debt you have against me. That's 12 grand that you hurt me. When Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers in uh, the Old Testament, he didn't come and say, you know what, guys, it was no big deal. Actually, it turns out they have great vegetables in Egypt. Like he didn't do that. He said, what you did was evil. And if someone's hurt you, you don't have to call it less than that. The gospel doesn't require that of you. What you did was evil. But then where do you go from there? You acknowledge a legitimate debt is owed, but then you take that debt and view it through the lens of the cross. That's why Jesus told the story. If the story was just a debtor, 
had a guy that owed him money and it was 100 denarii and he made the guy pay him back, you'd go, makes sense, feels logical, great story. That's it. But it's because of the great forgiveness of the king that what he did sounds so evil. And so for you and for I, how are we gonna be motivated to forgive? We have to see our lives in light of the king's sacrifice. Because here's the thing, the king paid the debt in the story. When he forgave that debtor, it's not like he suddenly got all those talents back. Someone's gonna lose 10,000 talents, either that guy or the king. And the king said, I forgive you, you're free. I'll absorb the debt. The king took the debt for his wicked servant. And that's meant to be a picture of the gospel, that you and I have all wandered far from what we're meant to be under God. He gave you a mouth to bless people and you've used it to curse people in God's image. He's given you hands and feet to serve and we've indifferently blown by people. He's given you a life you can use and gifts to bless others and you've used it to swerve past others to go for yours. We have disobeyed God in a million ways and the Bible calls it debt. We've accrued and God will bring that to light. And so when you take debt in front of the king, you realize two things. Number one, no one gets away with anything. And that should comfort you. Because some of us, when we think about forgiveness, we think it's releasing somebody that they're gonna get away with something. And I don't wanna get them away with it. I, don't, I want justice. And where this story helps you is you realize there will be justice. No one gets away with anything. That they will be called on the carpet before the king. And it is the same in the culture today. Whatever someone's wrong has done against you, God does not blow off their wrong. It will be paid for. God says, vengeance is mine. I will repay. God will make payment due for every wrongdoing done. And it will either be paid for by that person in hell or by Jesus on the cross. But no one gets away with anything. And when you realize that justice will be done by a holy God, that's what the cross shows me. God didn't look down on your and I's sin and go, it wasn't that bad. I mean, a couple world wars, you know, y'all were figuring it out. God doesn't say that. He says, y'all were so wicked, your debt will cost the payment of the precious blood of the son of God. You're that bad. But I'm so loving, I will pay it. The cross shows you God's hatred of sin. No one gets away with anything. There will be payment, but the king is willing to take it today. And God is so loving that he will offer that forgiveness to you if you accept the payment of the king. When you see their transgression against you through the lens of the cross, that makes you realize that person who wounded me is a debtor, not just against me, but against God. And so am I. And when you realize you're both debtors at the feet of a king whose grace you need, it's easier to be gracious to them. I know for me, after my parents' divorce, difficult moments in life, there was a time as a young man, I started to come to mind all that I didn't get when I had an absent dad. And I realized about mid-20s, early 20s, I had a lot of resentment and a lot of anger in me. And I liked that anger because it was a motivational tool I could use to get things done. But what I realized is you can't hold anger and love in your heart at the same time. You can't. You don't get to control that. And so I knew my heart was cold and I was judgmental and disciplined. And when I read 1 Corinthians about how you can speak with the tongue of men and angels, but if you don't have love, you're just a noise, I realized my whole life's a noise. And that broke my heart. And then it dawned on me, and I remember where I was standing in a park 
Yeah, my dad had failed in a lot of capacities as a father. But I knew the grace of Jesus. I knew what it was to be a debtor before the great king. I had his grace in my heart, but I held on to bitterness. A Christian that accepts grace but holds resentment, that is a wicked servant. C.S. Lewis said, of all bad men, religious bad men are the worst. And it's true. Think of the movies. The worst bad guys are all the religious bad guys. And I realized I'm that guy. My dad may not have been all he was meant to be, but my judgmental resentment in the name of Jesus is infinitely uglier. And when I saw myself in need of God's grace for my sin, I was so grateful I was beneath the benevolent king. And it became easy for me not to minimize, but to release. We are both debtors in need of grace. And praise be to God, we have a benevolent king. That's what you're meant to do. I don't have to call what that person did to me less than offensive, but it reframes it when I see it at the foot of the cross. I see it there. I acknowledge the debt owed. I take it through the lens of the cross and then I release it. I release it. Let me tell you something. That's really the only way you can do it. It's the only way. So Everett Worthington, as he processed his own life, he saw it that way. Here I was the forgiveness guy. He said, but then suddenly in a moment, when I saw that this person had taken my mom from me, I saw in my heart murderous rage, premeditated. I wanted to murder him and if given the opportunity, I would do it. And he said, but what I did is I started to think about the fact that I was forgiven. And so he'd started developing a theory he called REACH. And REACH was a little acronym. He said, I recall the injury. I recall what the person did and I don't forget it. But then I emotionally change. I start to put different emotions around those memories. Where there was rage or bitterness, I replace it with empathy. How can you empathize? He said, I started to think about what that kid had done. And I don't think he had planned to kill my mom. It was a robbery and she surprised him and he reacted. And after he did that, he smashed every mirror in the house and didn't take anything. He said, I think it horrified him what it did and it scared him and he ran. He said, this kid committed murder, but I was willing to commit a premeditated murder. And I realized we are both debtors. And he said, at the foot of the cross, it was his belief in Christ that began to change him, that I can have empathy so I can give the gift of releasing them. The altruistic gift was his A of saying, as I need to be released to a benevolent king, I release you into the hands of that king, either to judge you or give you mercy. He said, and then I committed to that forgiveness. That was the C. I held on to it. I hold it. That was the H. That I will forgive because I'll think about how much my king forgave me. That's the way you can do it. My king is righteous and he will judge. No one gets away with anything. But when I acknowledge him that way, it fills me with terror because I'm guilty. But when I realize he forgave me, I'm filled with relief. And then I have a conduit of grace to others. That power leads you to live a different life. That's what held the courtroom in stunned silence when Rachel Denhollander rose up to speak. Rachel was a successful gymnast that went on to be a lawyer. And much of what prompted her to be a lawyer was the abuse she suffered at Larry Nasser, the Olympic gymnast doctor. And she spent much of her life 
trying to bring him before court, facing abuse, facing people denying what he had done, facing people minimizing her hurt, facing people telling her to go away. She continued to press for justice and forgiveness and justice are not at odds. It is right to release somebody emotionally and forgive them, but they may need to go to jail to protect all of us. That's right. And so she finally got to a moment where Larry Nasser stood trial for not just abusing her, but over 150 young girls. And as he stood in that trial and was sentenced, Rachel Denhaller had a chance to speak and she stunned the judge. By the end, the judge said, you are a hero, the likes of which I have not seen. And it was because of these words. Rachel said to Larry, I want you to understand why I made this choice, the choice to bring him to court. Knowing full well what it was going to cost me to get here and what very little hope of ever succeeding I had. I did it because it was right. No matter the cost, it was right. And the farthest I can run from what you have become is to daily choose what is right instead of what I want. You have become a man ruled by selfish and perverted desires. A man defined by his daily choices repeatedly to feed that selfishness and perversion. You chose to pursue your wickedness no matter what it cost others. And the opposite of what you have done is for me to choose to love sacrificially no matter what it costs me. In our early hearings, you brought your Bible into the courtroom and you've spoken of praying for forgiveness. So it is on that basis that I appeal to you. If you have read the Bible you carry, you know the definition of sacrificial love portrayed is of God himself loving so sacrificially he gave up everything to pay a penalty for a sin he did not commit. And by his grace, I too choose to love this way. You spoke of praying for forgiveness, but Larry, if you've read the Bible you carry, you know forgiveness does not come from doing good things as if your good deeds can erase what you have done. It comes from repentance, which requires facing and acknowledging the truth about what you've done in all of its utter depravity and horror, without mitigation, without excuse, without acting as if good deeds can erase what you have seen this courtroom today. If the Bible you carry says it's better for a stone to be thrown around your neck and you thrown into a lake than to even make one child stumble, Larry, you have damaged hundreds. The Bible you speak of carries a final judgment where all of God's wrath and eternal terror is poured out on men like you. And should you ever reach the point of truly facing what you've done, the guilt will be crushing. And that is what makes the gospel of Christ so sweet because it extends grace and hope and mercy where none should be found and it will be there for you. I pray you experience the soul-crushing weight of your guilt so you may someday experience true repentance and true forgiveness from God, which you need far more than forgiveness from me, though I extend that to you as well. A courtroom was held in stunned silence because this young girl was able to hold together those twin powers of justice and mercy righteousness and grace 
What you have done is wrong and evil, and it will be paid for, Larry, either by you in hell or Jesus on that cross. But Rachel was able to release not just him, but herself. But I will not be tied to you forever in resentment and bitterness. How? Because I know that sacrificial love given to me can flow to me and even to someone like you. And when you embrace a forgiveness like that, it changes you, and then you can be a change agent for others. I remember watching the news. News anchors were stunned as they watched an Amish community who had a gunman come into their midst, take over a schoolhouse, and shoot a number of their daughters. Unfortunately, that does not stun us anymore. And that's not what stunned these news anchors. What stunned them was the Amish community's response. While they were still learning of which girls had passed away, a contingent of them went to the parents of the shooter and said, we've come here because we understand you're like us. You're also grieving the loss of a son because he was killed and killed himself. They comforted their shooter's parents. 30 of them, including parents who lost their kids, showed up at his funeral and they formed a human barricade to block the media who was swarming with cameras from this family so they could grieve the loss of their son because they said, we are all grieving loss today. Then when she got cancer, they came over to clean her house. And every Christmas, they'd load up in a bus and sing Christmas carols at her home. How can they do that? Because they know Christ. They know how ugly sin is in all of its forms. And they know how transformative grace is. And so they've been touched by grace so they can show grace and not just be another casualty of the ugliness of the world, but to be a conduit of kindness within to it. Hate is too great a burden to bear, but forgiveness breathes mercy. And those who know grace are meant to show it. And you can when you've tasted the grace of the great King. When you know your debt and his forgiveness, you're empowered to forgive theirs. How do I know I've released it? Romans 12 will say, never take your own revenge. Leave room for the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. You resist thoughts of revenge, but when they come up, you put that person into the hands of God. You don't seek to do them harm. First Thessalonians 5 says, see that no one repays evil for evil. When they slight me, I don't burn them back. I release them to God. I grieve over their calamities. Proverbs 24, do not rejoice when an enemy falls. Don't let your heart be glad when he stumbles. Man, Twitter would shut down if we obeyed Proverbs 24. I pray for them. Jesus said in Matthew 5, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Seek reconciliation, Romans 12 says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace for all men. And I love the caveat Paul says there, as far as it's possible, seek peace with all men. That there are some situations that you need to forgive someone, but to go personally to them to seek reconciliation would put you in harm's way or potentially them. Forgiveness does not mean staying in an abusive situation that's scary for you or your kids. Forgiveness does not mean enablement of abuse. You might love someone and the most loving thing is to get away from them, to not let them back in your circle. There's a lot of nuance to that that counselors and our team can help you process. But forgiveness does not mean enabling someone to keep sinning against you, but it does mean I won't harbor bitterness. 
It means as far as it depends on me, I'm going to put grace into the atmosphere. I'm going to put love out into the world and trust God will heal his people in his time. We're meant to be like that. And the world changes when we are. And the consequences are dire if we don't. Everett Worthington was, un, was able to forgive his mother's murderer and continue to write about forgiveness and teach on it from an even more profound place. His brother was not able to forgive, suffered with PTSD for years, and then took his own life. Another casualty of the burden of resentment. It doesn't have to be that way. Some of us have been really wounded, but woundedness does not need to define your story. Grace is too powerful for that. And if you say, well, I don't know if I can muster it, you can't. You don't have a reservoir of grace that deep, but our king does. Corrie ten Boom lived in Holland under the Nazi regime. Her and her family decided to hide Jewish friends from the Nazis. They were discovered and they were thrown into a concentration camp along with them. Her sister grew emaciated there. She watched her sister die. Corey survived. And as she got out, she began to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. She would go all over the world to teach about his grace. Wrote beautiful books about her story, about how she would extend the grace of God to others. And then one day she had a chance to go back to Germany. And she said, while I was in Germany, you could feel the weight of the oppression of their sin on them. So when I arrived in that room, I could feel them crushed by their shame. She said, I spoke of forgiveness. The grace of God can forgive anybody. The apostle Paul was a murderer that became a missionary. The grace of God is sufficient for you. And she said she began to preach about grace. And when she was done, she went down front to shake hands. And a man came forward to shake her hand. And she recognized him. He was a guard at Ravensbrook. He guarded the showers where she watched her sister die. And she said the man came up to her and extended a hand. And he said, how good it is to know that as you say, our sins can be at the bottom of the sea. And he held out a hand. And she said, I refuse to shake it. She said, I who spoke so glibly of forgiveness would rather fumble with my pocketbook in that moment than take that hand. He continued, you mentioned Ravensbrook in your talk. I was a guard there. But since then, I've become a Christian. I know God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did. Will you ever forgive me? And he extended a hand again. And she said, I stood there. I whose sins had again and again been forgiven and I could not forgive. Betsy died in that place. She said, it could not have been many seconds that I stood there, but it seemed to me like hours as I wrestled with the most difficult thing I had to do. I knew I had to do it. If you don't forgive trespasses, Jesus said, your father in heaven will not forgive yours. I knew it not only as a command from God, but as daily experience. Since the end of the war, I had had a home in Holland for victims of Nazi brutality. And I saw that those who were able to forgive their former enemies were able to return to the outside world and rebuild their lives, but regardless of their physical scars. But those who nursed their bitterness remained invalids. It was as simple and horrible as that. But as I stood there, I clutched the coldness in my heart and I prayed, Jesus, help me. 
I can lift my hand, but you got to supply the feeling. And so woodenly, mechanically, I thrust my hand into the one stretched out to me. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. A current started in my shoulder, raced down my arm, sprang into our joined hands, and a healing warmth flooded my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, with all my heart. For a long moment, we gazed at each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. I had never known the love of God so intensely as I did then. And even then I realized it was not my love. I tried and I didn't have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit as recorded in Romans 5. The love of God is shed abroad in our hearts through the Holy Spirit that he's given us. You have to forgive. You're physically built to. It'll destroy you if you don't. You're commanded to by God, but you don't have the tools. But thanks be to God for his amazing grace that the King's grace flies first, that we can be forgiven. And when you understand that, you will find within you a reservoir of grace from which you can be a conduit to forgive others. And that's when the world will begin to change. That's when cultures will shift, when the people of grace begin to show grace. Maybe this whole world will change. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church DC podcast.